So if you like them, Savannah made them. If you don't like them, Roy made them. Okay, as I mentioned last week, we are um, deviating from Matthew. We stopped at the end of chapter 4, just before the Sermon of the Mount. And as has been planned, we are coming back to 1 Corinthians. We didn't finish it, so we're going to be in chapter 15 this Sunday, and then we'll finish up chapter 15 on Easter Sunday. And so we will keep the same title uh, throughout uh, this study, You Will Rise. So it'll be part one, two, three, and four. So as I had mentioned previously, uh, when we think about interacting with people about the gospel, when we talk to those people that we know who are unbelievers, there's a common ground that we can um, utilize to engage people, and that is the concept of what happens after we die, right? Everybody thinks about that. You have a pulse, you think, what happens to me after I die. Right, we know from Ecclesiastes, and I, I mention this often, but I actually had the verse up here now. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, he says, I've seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Well, see, now you could take that and say, yes, he has made everything beautiful. Okay, he's made everything. I'm one of them, so now I'm beautiful. Okay. <laughs> the way I like to look at it. He has made everything beautiful in this time. And then the, the important part is he has also set eternity in the human heart, right? So we have this concept that, uh, that we're eternal, right? That there's something has to happen after we die, that we just don't, you know, our, our, it's not that our heart stops, you know, we have no more pulse, the brain waves cease, okay? And then that's it. No, we, we, we have, there's etern there's Eternity has been given to us by God. We are created in the image of God. We are created as we have a spirit, so we are e eternal. And then he goes on to say, yet no one can fathom what God has done from the beginning. One of the lies of, of humanism, humanism it really is, places humanity at the center of everything. Really, humanism has its roots back in the 1600s, uh, even before that, 1500s, the Enlightenment, when we went from there is truth outside of us, external objective truth from God that we must submit to, we move from that to uh, truth is, is from within. You determine, you are the arbiter of truth. You determine what truth is. And humanism, uh, that, that is the, the foundational belief system, that, that people are the center. Truth is determined by the person. And so humanism would say, humanism, part of humanism is what we call nihilism. And, and nihilism really says that, you know, you are just, as you sit there, you're just, um, uh, you know, you are cells, atoms and cells uh, put together as tissues and organs, and you have electrical impulses floating through you. And, and when that stops, you no longer exist. You are nothing. Okay. There is no God, All right. and, and, and so evolution, humanism, nihilism, right, teaches that you know, you're, you're born and you die and that's it, there's nothing else. Born, die, and that's it. As Paul was writing to the church in Corinth, he wasn't necessarily dealing with that. I would argue that you really have to convince people of this truth, because God has placed in the heart 
of every person eternity, that there is life after this in some form or fashion. In the context that Paul is writing in at 1 Corinthians, uh, those in Corinth were affected by Greek culture and Greek thought, Greek philosophy. And they mentioned this when we were looking at 1 Corinthians, that Platonic, not Pluto, <laughs> like the guy off of, of Walt Disney, uh, the dog. No, it's Platonic, like Plato. Platonic dualism, right? There is a, you are, you are a dual being, right? You have a physical nature, you have the material and then you have the immaterial, the spirit. The higher realm is the spiritual. The lower realm is the physical. All right? And so the idea in the Greek worldview is that your spirit's going to go on, okay, but not your body. Because your body's bad. Your body is where all the bad stuff happens. Right? We can kind of relate to that, right? As we think about every day we're faced with the slow degradation of our bodies, I mean, even when we stay in shape, you know, it's like, what is going on, right? Uh, we, 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 you know, we have aches and pains. We're slowly breaking down. We can see how the physical, you know, is, it's just not right. And so there's this dualism. Spirit, physical, right? The higher realm is the spirit, lower realm is physical. So you want to, the idea is to get rid of the physical. You don't want to take this earthly body with you, right? And and when you guys think of the resurrection from the dead, most of us don't want to take what we've got into the next life, right? <laughs> we want some kind of change, right? And that's one of the messages uh, in the next couple of weeks. But in Corinth, this is what was going on, right? I mean, they, were, they, were, they would use their body for, you know, uh, you know to, to feed themselves. Like, they would find great pleasure in what they ate, and they would find great pleasure in the relationships between men and women, Okay, that, that it's just the body. That's all it is. It's just the body. It's just the stomach. That's all it is. When I, when I die, that's, it's going to be gone. It's going to stay here. All right, they didn't believe. They, to them, it was a foreign thought that, that their body would be resurrected. That's not what they wanted. And, and so Paul is having to, to, to combat that. And he reminds the church at Corinth, Okay, that to deny a bodily resurrection of believers is to deny a bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, which would make their faith useless. And you can flip that. To deny a bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ would mean that you wouldn't rise from the dead. So this is basically the issue that Paul is addressing as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So let's pray and ask God to give us wisdom as we understand the bodily resurrection from the dead, beginning with Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you so much for the hope that you've given us in your word. We thank you that this life is not all that there is. We thank you for the hope of a bodily resurrection with a glorified body in which we will enjoy you and know you forever. Lord, I pray that you would give us understanding as we look at the truth of your word this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so as we look at the text this morning, and the verse wrong there, don't, don't, it's, it's one and two there, the facts. The first thing we're we'll looking at is the facts that Paul wants to present to the church at Corinth. There's a quick word we need to understand about the facts. The fact is this, is that Paul received what he knows about the gospel. He received what he knows about the resurrection from the dead. He has received that from God. 
specifically, specially from God. He met the resurrected Savior on the road to Damascus, but he was also taught by the resurrected Savior. He received information, facts from God, and he is passing it on to the church at Corinth. He's passing it on to us as well. If you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you don't need to go there, but when we would participate in the Lord's Supper, Paul says, I received what I received from the Lord concerning the Lord's Supper, I pass on to you. There are facts that I have received, and I'm passing them on to you. And here, the facts that he is receiving are the facts of the gospel. Right? He says, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I passed on to you of first importance, right? He says, what I have received is very important. It's, it, it's, it's, it is, in the Greek, it is the most important. It is of primary importance. And so as we look at verses one and two, there are a couple of facts that I want to convey to you. And fact number one is this. The gospel is the most important message because it is the only message that saves, secures, and endures. We take in information all day long, don't we? We get messages from our boss via email all day, messages on social media, messages on the television through commercials. We get messages in the mail that we receive. Some of them are junk mail, right? And some of them, well, a little more important. Some of them is like, you get something from the IRS, very important, right? Okay, so we, we kind of weigh out the importance of the information that we receive on any given day or any given week. Right? Paul says, look, the most important message is the gospel of Jesus Christ because your greatest problem is your sin problem. Your greatest problem is that your sin separates you from God. Your relationship with your Heavenly Father is broken. And I'm bringing to you, I brought to you, Church of Corinth, that message which brings you back into that love relationship that God desires with you. The gospel is that message, first of all, this is the message that saves us. He says, by this gospel, you are saved. It's the saving message. Paul says, as he writes to the church at Rome at the beginning of his, his letter, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is God's power to save whoever will believe. Jew, Gentile, Greek, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, male, free. It is God's message of salvation. So if your greatest problem is your separation from God because of your sin then the greatest message would be that message which remedies that problem and brings you back into that love relationship. The gospel is of first importance because it's the saving message. But Paul also says that it's, it's the message that's securing. It's the securing message. He says, this gospel message is the message on which you have taken your stand. It's the message on which you are banking on for eternity. Jay, how do you know where you're going to go when you die? Well, God's word tells me that if I confess with my mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord 
If I declare with my mouth that Jesus Christ was Lord, if I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead, then I will be saved. My sins are taken away. My relationship with God is restored. So we have security. We stand as believers. In our, we've been saved. We've placed our faith in Jesus Christ. We stand securely in the message of the gospel. We are secure. So the gospel message isn't just a message that saves us. It's also, we could say, the message that sanctifies us. It's the message in which we live and move and breathe and have our believing, uh, living as, as, as believers, as followers of Christ. So this gospel message is important for salvation. It's important for our security, our standing in God. And as, as believers, I think sometimes we tend to relegate the gospel to, okay, I was, that's, that's what I believed when I was saved. And, and it was. It, it is what you believed. But you need the gospel every single day, right? Jerry Bridges says, preach the gospel to yourself daily. You need the gospel every day. You need the gospel every hour. You need the gospel every second of your life. Because the gospel, gospel message evokes praise. I can't give you all the verses of this. I can give it to you later if you want. It evokes praise. The gospel message reminds you that you are no longer who you were in your sin. You are now in Christ. The gospel message sustains you. In Him, you live and move and breathe and have your being. You grow in the grace of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. It keeps you from sin. Why would I sin? I've been forgiven so much. The gospel tells us about that. The gospel beats down our pride. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. There's nothing you can do to earn the righteousness that you need to stand before God. The gospel motivates us to do hard work for the cause of Christ. Right? It's by grace that you're saved, not by works. It, no, it's, it's by grace through faith you're saved, not by works. That's the gift of God so that nobody would boast, right? And then he goes on to say what? You are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. The gospel protects us from despair. When we've sinned again and again and we failed again and again, we remember the blood of Jesus Christ, the righteousness of Jesus Christ that's given to us through the gospel. It casts out fear that we will never be rejected when we stand before God because of our belief in the gospel. It gives us hope for the life to come, for the resurrection of the dead and its fuel for evangelism. So the gospel is the most important message because it's the message that saves, it's the message that secures, and it is the message that endures. It's the enduring message. It says, this gospel you're saved if you hold firmly to the word. The gospel message is an enduring message. The gospel message will never change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God does not change. The message of salvation has been the same from the beginning of time, right? Oh, what about the people before Jesus Christ? Well, the people before Christ were placing their faith in the Messiah to come. After Christ, we place our faith in the Messiah who's come. It's always been by faith. It's the same enduring message. Our knowledge of the message has been enhanced and grown. But it's the enduring message. It never changes. But it's also the message that causes us to endure. Friends, we have to endure in faith the doctrine of perseverance. That all who come in faith will endure in that same faith. And how do we do that? We hold firmly to the word. 
We hold firmly to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You cannot secure your own salvation by good works. You secure your salvation through faith in the work of Jesus Christ, and you continue to hold on to that. Right? Just think about your own life. The number of times that you sin daily, weekly, monthly, you really think that there's something that you're going to do to make up for that sin and somehow you're going to secure your eternal destiny through your own works? You're not. No, this endurance is as you hold firmly to the word of God. So fact number one, as Paul presents it to us, he says the gospel saves, the gospel secures, the gospel endures. And if you believe in anything else, he says, you have believed in vain. And we'll hit that point again at the end. All right. First point, the gospel is the most important message because it is the only message that saves, secures, and endures. Now, the first point to ponder, and I've thrown these in as we are are going along this time. The gospel message, Paul says, is the message of first importance. And my question for you is, is the message of the gospel of first importance in your life? And I'm going to expand on what the gospel is in just a second. Is the gospel message of first importance in your life? Have you thought about that? You might say, well, Paul is writing, Jay, I'm, I'm not Paul. I, I hear what you're saying, but this is Paul. He's an apostle. Like He was sent to the Gentiles. Jesus Christ saw him. Jesus Christ confronted him on the road to Damascus. Paul saw the risen Savior. He was completely transformed. Of course it was important to Paul, right? He was commissioned by Christ himself. Well, friends, a couple weeks ago, I preached this message called Fishers of Men. And the main point was this, faithful followers of Jesus Christ fish for other followers. That was the point of the message. What what do we fish with? As we fish for followers, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, Paul says the gospel is of first importance. Jesus says, I'm calling you as a follower. As followers, you fish for Christ. What do I fish with? I fish with the gospel. So then the gospel is pretty important to you as well. And I said at that time, nobody gets a pass on fishing for other followers, right? Nobody. And as for Paul, right? Paul says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So if Paul's example was that the gospel is of primary importance, and that spreading the gospel throughout the world to other nations, to your neighbors, to your family, if that's of primary importance, then shouldn't we do it? Shouldn't it be important to us? I want you to think about your life. How often during the week do you think about the gospel of Jesus Christ? Most of us are very selfish, and we think about it in terms of, I'm saved by the gospel. And that's important. Again, as I said, we stand in the gospel. We endure in the gospel. Fact number two, the gospel must include the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, it is not the gospel. And this is the point he's getting to, right? In 1 Corinthians 15, look, you guys, you're saying there is no bodily resurrection. And I'm telling you that Jesus Christ was resurrected bodily And and his doing that, right, he secures our justification. He is vindicated by that resurrection. So if you say there's no bodily resurrection, then you have no gospel. You're not saved. Your faith is in vain. 
But there are core facts of the gospel that must be believed. And he tells us there in the text, For what I receive, I pass on to you, of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, that Christ was buried, and that he rose again on the third day. Well, how do we know that? Were you there? Anybody there? No, you weren't there. What? According to the scriptures. According to the, what scriptures is he talking about? Friends, he's talking about the Old Testament, the Tanakh. Right? So if you're a member of a church where the pastor denies the importance or validity of the Old Testament, you got problems. According to the scriptures, the gospel teaches us that Christ died for our sins that he was buried and he rose again on the third day. This is the core of the gospel. This is the irreducible minimum of the gospel, right? Some of you are like, Jay, you're telling me I have to fish for other followers and that, that the gospel's got to be important to me. I just, there's so much that I, I can't remember all that. I get, I get overwhelmed when I think about talking to somebody. What am I supposed to remember, Jay? I just can't do that. Repeat after me. Christ died for our sins. Say it. Christ died for our sins. Christ was buried. Christ was buried. Christ rose on the third day. According to the scriptures. All right, you've got it. You've got the gospel message. You've got it. It's not that hard. No more excuses. You can memorize this. So the first thing we see here This irreducible minimum of the gospel is that Jesus Christ died in our place on the cross as our substitute. We sang about that. The Lamb of God. They're not singing. In my place. i got to stop singing really quickly. He bore my wrath, my sin erased. Right. So this concept of Jesus Christ being our substitute, this is so important, right? Because God requires a perfect record. You can never gain a perfect record on your own because you continue to sin. Jesus Christ, when he was hanging on the cross, he didn't just die a physical death. I mean, that was painful enough. That was horrific. But your sins were placed on him. He was your substitute. The death that you deserve to die, he died for you. He was your substitute. And so we consider... Some deep theological concepts here. Now, I don't want to dumb you guys down. I want you to put on your thinking caps. I want to respect you enough to believe that you can understand what I'm about to say, because it's not that difficult. Oh, Pastor Jay's using these big words, or some theological terms, Jay. Don't you think you need to explain? Look, you can handle this. If you can figure out your cell phone, you can handle this, okay? As we look at Jesus Christ being our substitute, there's two different ways that these both these red phrases mean the same thing, okay? There's vicarious penal atonement. That word penal, think of penitentiary, think of punishment. Vicarious is somebody who is in your place. They're your substitute. So Jesus Christ in your place was your substitute. The concept of atonement is there must be shedding of blood. There must be blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. There must be a life given up. The wages of sin is is death. Somebody has to die in your place for your sins. Adam and Eve in the garden. One sin. God, you're kind of picky. They rebelled against God. 
that one sin was enough to separate them from God. And then we read in the text in Genesis, it's, it's kind of, it can slip past you if you're thinking about it, but God clothed them in animal skins, right? They were naked and unashamed. They sinned, then they became ashamed, and God clothed them. He took away their shame through the sacrifice of an animal. There was blood that was shed, and they were covered by God. That's where atonement begins, really. So atonement is the forgiveness of sins through the shedding of blood. So Christ, as your substitute, when he was hanging on the cross, his blood was shed, his life was given up, taking the punishment that you deserved. He was your substitute on the cross. And aren't you so thankful? Jesus Christ is our substitute. We see this in various places, 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 3.18. We looked at this in Bible study this week. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, right? Jesus is the righteous one. He suffered in your place because you're unrighteous. In some versions it says the just for the unjust so that he could bring you to God to restore you into that love relationship that God desires for you. So, first thing we see, the irreducible minimum of the gospel, that Christ died in your place on the cross. He died for your sins for according to the Scriptures. The second thing we see is that he was buried. Now, why did he put that in? And I, and I think the only reason it's in there is because he was really dead. You don't put somebody in a tomb unless they're really dead. In the words of Princess Bride, he's not just mostly dead. He's all the way dead. He's fully dead. Jesus Christ died. He gave up his life as your substitute. The second, really, the second part of this irreducible minimum is that Christ rose from the dead according to the Scriptures on the third day. Jesus was resurrected bodily as he said he would be. Well, again, putting on your thinking caps. Why does this matter? Well, okay, duh, Jay, he rose from the dead. Okay, that means I get to rise from the dead. He conquered sin and death. Okay, which means that I don't have to die anymore, eternally, because of sin. Okay, I, I get that. But I think we need to think a little bit more deeply about it. When we think about the fact that Christ rose from the dead on the third day, the first thing we think about is that it vindicated his life and his words, right? Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry, look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, three times in each of those Gospels, he says, look, guess what? I'm going to be handed over to the authorities. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be killed, and then I'm going to rise from the dead. So Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry said, I am going to rise from the dead. And he rose from the dead. So it vindicated his life and his words. Paul talks about this in Romans, in Romans chapter 1, verse 4. He says, and through the spirit of holiness, he was, that word appointed really declared, he was declared the son of God in power, what? By his resurrection from the dead. So his resurrection from the dead vindicated his life and his words, but his resurrection from the dead also guarantees our justification. And this is so important. Paul says in Romans chapter 4, 25, he says, He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Well, Jay, there's that big word, justification. It simply means that you are declared righteous. 
It's a legal term. You are given Christ's righteousness the moment you place your faith in Jesus Christ. The moment you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you are declared righteous. You are brought into a new relationship with God. God now forever sees you as his child. He sees you as his sinless son of God because you are robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Gone is the guilt and the shame and the fear of sin. You have a perfect standing before God. Friends, you need that. Well, not only does Jesus Christ's resurrection validate his life and his words, it guarantees our justification, but it also, to the point, guarantees our bodily resurrection. That's the point that Paul's trying to make. It guarantees our bodily resurrection. Now, we'll get to later on what kind of body that is. Paul talks about that. And again, I have high hopes of my resurrection body. 1 Corinthians 15, 20, he says, But Christ indeed has been raised from the dead. The first fruits, right? The first fruits of that. The first part of the crop that guarantees the rest of the crop. And friends, if Christ is the first fruits, think about this. If you're a farmer, right? When I, when I do my grapes, I go out there and I look at them and that first bunch that, that, that you know, it comes out, I'm looking at it, I just can't wait, you know, and then it matures and it's fruit and, I, you know, I go out there and, man, this is going to be a good crop, right? Christ is our first fruits is that guarantee of what we will be. That should give you some hope, right? It should. For since death came through a man, and resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam we all die, so in Christ we will all be made alive. Just as sure as sin results in death, because of Adam, we have life in Christ, and we will have eternal life in Christ. He says, then when he comes, those who belong with him will come as the first fruits. All right, so... Fact one, the gospel is the only message that saves and secures and endures. Fact number two, the gospel must include the death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, it is not the gospel. So we have the facts, and now we have, and again, the versation is wrong, the faithful. The facts and the faithful. The followers of Jesus faithfully proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, even though it costs many their lives. So I'm going to run through the list. We'll see, I'm going to read the actual verses attached to this in a second. But he gives us a list of people that saw Jesus Christ, the resurrected Savior. right? And he begins with Cephas. Goes to the twelve, the five hundred, James, the apostles, and then Paul. Let's think about these people for a minute and their lives after they witnessed the resurrected Savior. right? Peter, he preached the gospel. He was faithful at that, right? Early leader of the church. He was the rock upon which the church was founded. He was crucified upside down because he proclaimed the good news of Jesus Christ. How about the 12? Beginning with James, the brother of John. He's the first one we see martyred after Stephen. Preached the gospel. He was beheaded by Herod. Simon the Zealot preached the gospel. He was crucified. Thaddeus preached the gospel. He was killed. Bartholomew preached the gospel beaten down with staves and crucified. Andrew, the brother of Peter, preached the gospel. He was crucified. Thomas preached the gospel, slain by a dart. You get, no, let me, I should have said this beginning. 
Okay, we have in the Bible, we know about what happens to the ones who are in the Bible, okay? The rest of these that I'm telling you, like Thomas, this is given to us by other writings outside the Bible, but they've been proven to be reliable. Thomas preached the gospel, slain by a dart, a big spear. Philip preached the gospel, martyred by cruel means. Matthew preached the gospel, stabbed to death. James, the son of Alphaeus, James the lesser, preached the gospel, stoned, then clubbed to death. Matthias, he was the one who became, a, 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 you know, he was an apostle after Judas um, committed suicide, preached the gospel, burned to death. See a pattern here? They believed. They preached what they believed. They preached that irreducible minimum. And they were martyred for what they believed. And then John, we left John out, preached the gospel. Was he martyred? We're not really sure. Some say death by hot oil. Now, that would be a bad way to go. Dying like a French fry. It'd be horrible. Killed by Jewish mob. Ascended into heaven. Uh, The other one is death by stoning, I think. It's off there, the second one. Preached the gospel, and he was killed. How about the... The 500 brothers and sisters, right? We don't know who those were. There's a count there, 500, so we have to believe what it says. When we think about the early church, we think about the first persecution under Nero in Rome and how people were taken into the Colosseum and they were attacked by animals. They were martyred. Why? Because they believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. How about James, the brother of Jesus? He's listed here. I think it's so compassionate that Paul, Paul mentions this, that Jesus appears to James after he's resurrected bodily. And, and, and if we, as we read the gospel accounts, Jesus' brothers really weren't friendly to him during, during earthly ministry. And Jesus it's, makes a point to go to James. And it transformed James' life so that he would be a leader in the early church. James preached the gospel as well. Guess what? He was stoned to death. Well, then we have all the apostles listed. Well, who are, who are those? So those are the people who were with Jesus from the time of his baptism, and they saw the resurrected Savior. So it's kind of a catch-all. Everybody who was there from the beginning of his ministry till his ascension, basically, he appeared to them. And then lastly, we have Paul, the apostle who's writing this letter. What happened to Paul? Paul preached the gospel, and he was beheaded. There's a pattern here. So why were so many people willing to be martyred? Why? Why were they so willing to do that, to give up their life? Well, the answer is this. The resurrected Messiah had appeared to them. As such, they believed in the resurrection from the dead. If they were killed for their faith, they would rise again. They knew that death had no hold on them, that death was just passing from one life to another. And we see this in the text. He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared. Now, granted, if you read it in the original language, he appeared happens once, and then it's assumed with all the rest of them. That's why the NIV puts it there. And he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters. And at the same time, most of them are still living. Though some have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep is died, okay? It's death. There's not like a sleep state. Then he appeared to James then to all the apostles, and last of all, Paul says, last of all, he appeared to me. 
And for that, Paul was extremely gracious. Paul was so thankful that the resurrected Messiah had appeared to him. And he, and he tells us about why. He understood that he did not deserve to be an apostle. But by God's grace, he was. So as Paul ministered in Corinth, he was constantly being credited a question about his credentials as an apostle. Are you really an apostle? Because when we told you weren't with Jesus at his baptism, you weren't with him during his earthly ministry, uh, and, and you weren't one of those who uh, immediately saw him after he was resurrected from the dead. So really, you don't meet the qualifications for an apostle as one who was sent by Jesus Christ. So really, do you have authority over us? And so Paul is having to defend his position as an apostle. And so he recognizes this. He says, look, he says, I was one who was abnormally born. That word abnormally is really the word abnormally born is like a, 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 an aborted fetus discard. It, it's in really, you, and you move past that, it, it's, it's a, a child who was not born at the right time. And it can even go to a child who, who went past full term. The timing of the birth of the baby was just wrong. And Paul's saying, look, I get it. My birth, my conversion was not at, at the right time, right? And he goes on and he says, I don't even deserve to be called an apostle. I was one who persecuted the church, he says. So of all the, I mean, why would he choose me? I didn't deserve this. I was there when Stephen was stoned, and I was like, yeah, throw more, one more rock. Come on, that rock's not heavy. Pick up another rock that's heavier. Hit Stephen in that side of the head. He was there persecuting the church. He was going after the church on the road to Damascus when Jesus Christ, the resurrected Savior, in bodily form, confronted him. I don't believe the road to Damascus was some kind of vision. Jesus Christ in bodily form form confronted Saul on the road to Damascus. And so Paul, as he talks to Church of Corinth, says, you're right. I don't deserve to be an apostle. This has been the greatest pleasure of my life. The greatest privilege has been to serve as an ambassador, ambassador taking the gospel message to the Gentiles. I have been so blessed. He's like, I don't deserve it. But he says, by God's grace, I was chosen. The resurrected Messiah, Jesus Christ, graciously appeared to him. Therefore, Paul worked hard at preaching the gospel, even in the face of great persecution. Right? Look, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me, what was the grace that was to him? The grace to him was Jesus Christ coming to him on the road to Damascus. That was the grace. He didn't deserve that. Matter of fact, he deserved to like fall off his horse and hit his horse and hit his head on a rock and die. That's what he deserved, right? Because he was going to kill more Christians. I mean, just, just think about that. If you feel unworthy of Jesus Christ because of your past sins, if you feel like you should be punished for your past sins, think about Paul. He was killing Christians. And God lovingly spoke into his life through his son, Jesus Christ. It's grace, friends. His grace to me was not without effect, Paul says. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God in, that was in me. Paul's seeing 
being confronted by, being taught by the resurrected Jesus Christ, changed his life forever. His mission was to the Gentiles. He was even told he was going to suffer because of that. It didn't slow him down. He worked harder than all of them. And as you read um, 2 Corinthians, you understand that Paul went through a lot to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 11 has this list. And Paul is defending his apostleship. He's not bragging. It's kind of a tongue-in-cheek here. He's like, look, I worked harder. I was in prison more. I was flogged more. I was exposed to death. I was whipped five times with a, a, a horrible whip with glass and steel in it. He says, um, I was beaten with rods three times. I was pelted with stones. I was shipwrecked. I was gone without sleep, hunger, thirst, cold, and naked. Why would you do something? Why would Paul do that? Why would he suffer the way that he suffered? He goes on to say, in chapter 15, he says, and as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? He says, I face death every day. Every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes. What have I gained He says, if the dead are not raised. Why was Paul willing to work so hard, sacrifice so much, face danger and persecution? Why? Because he had witnessed the resurrected Savior. He had seen Jesus Christ, and he believed that one day he would be resurrected in the same manner. So my question for you as you think through this is, what are you willing to suffer for the cause of the gospel? Have you thought about that? What are you willing to suffer? You're suffering a sermon right now, right? It's 12. You're like, I'm hungry. I'm not naked, but I'm hungry. What are you willing to suffer for the cause of the gospel? Well, again, you might be saying, you know, those are extreme examples. Not everyone is called to that kind of sacrifice, right? You think about that. Again, that's that two-tier Christianity that I've warned you about. The Bible doesn't know about two-tier Christianity. There's not just the, you know, those that are just going to escape the fires of hell, and then, and, then, and then those who are the really committed ones. There's no two-tier Christianity. What's the calling of Christ? What is salvation? What's the salvation call by Christ? It's this. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses my life, their life for me will find it. Just take up your cross. Do you think those disciples took Jesus seriously? I read through the list. Every one of them gave their life because they proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were willing to suffer and die for the cause of Jesus Christ. Why? Because they had witnessed the resurrected Messiah. So Paul is saying, look, guys, Corinth, you're saying there's no bodily resurrection. I'm telling you, there is. I've seen Jesus Christ. Think about all these people that I just listed. They were willing to give up their life for the cause of the gospel. And as you think about what you're willing to sacrifice, It's an argument of the greater to the lesser, right? If you're willing to give your life and take up your cross means you're willing to die for the cause of Christ, then you're willing to do everything less than that. And quite frankly, sometimes 
I'm not in any way minimizing somebody dying for Jesus, but I'm saying sometimes it can be very hard to live every day for Jesus. If you're like me, sometimes you've woken up, you said, Jesus, take me now. I'm ready to go. But because they had witnessed the resurrected Messiah, they believed in the bodily resurrection, they were willing to take up the cross and follow Jesus. Well, you might be saying, you know what, Jay, and I don't have the guy, the picture of that guy up there anymore. You know, Jay, if I could see the resurrected Jesus, then, then maybe I'd be, more, I'd be more zealous, I'd be more energetic, I'd be more committed, right? I mean, these people were really committed because they saw Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead. Would you guys agree that you think like that? If I really saw Jesus like that, I mean, of course I'd be on fire. Of course I'd sail across the Mediterranean and face persecution. At the end of the Gospel of John, in John chapter 20, Jesus is appearing to his disciples. You're familiar with this. This guy named Thomas, who later gave his life for Christ. They're like, Thomas, yeah, we've seen Jesus. He's, he's resurrected bodily. He is resurrected bodily. Thomas is like, mm, seeing's believing. Let me put my hands in his side, his hands. Then I'll believe. Jesus appeared. And sure enough, Thomas felt the wounds of the Messiah who gave his life for him. He felt the hands with nails, that, with the, the holes where the nails had gone through Jesus' hands. He felt them. And Jesus, what did Jesus say to him? He says, you know what? Because you've seen me, you believe. I tell you, those who haven't seen and still believe are blessed. You guys want a blessing? Live for Jesus Christ in such a way that you're willing to deny yourself, take your cross, follow him, and make the gospel of Jesus Christ of primary importance. So the last thing we see here is the faith. The faith. Paul says, whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach. And this is what you believed. You came to faith in Jesus Christ, believing that he was resurrected bodily. If you go away from that, you've believed in vain. Bodily resurrection is real. Jesus' bodily resurrection proves it's real. And many witnesses testify to it. Without his resurrection from the dead, you have no salvation, you have no gospel, and you are believing in vain. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you um, for the fact that Christ rose from the dead to give us the hope of eternal life. We thank you for the gospel uh, that saves, the gospel that tells us that Christ died on the cross for our sins, that he was buried, and then he rose from the dead. Father, we thank you that Christ did the work, a work that we can't do. As Sam mentioned earlier, the only work that we need to do is believe. And I pray that this morning, if there's anybody who knows that their relationship with God is broken, um, that they are separated from life in God, Lord, I pray this morning that you would work in their hearts. Father, that you would open their eyes, that they would declare with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, 
and that they would believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so this morning, uh, we sang this song earlier, but I thought it was